Welcome to the Food Therapy Podcast, where we talk honestly and openly about mental health, diet culture BS, and food freedom. We're your co-hosts. I'm Brittany Modell, owner of Brittany Modell Nutrition and Wellness. And I'm Lauren Sharp, owner of Empower Method Nutrition. We are food freedom registered dietitians who have struggled with mental health, poor body image, and disordered eating behaviors. We are on a mission to dismantle diet culture, normalize conversations around mental health, and empower you as you heal your relationship with food and your body. Let's get talking. Hello and welcome back to the Food Therapy Podcast. Today we are so excited. We have Maggie Landis with us and we're going to be chatting all about weight science. So Maggie is a board certified physician, a public health nutritionist, and an anti-diet wellness expert. She created her signature Get Eatfluence coaching program to help women who are exhausted with chronic dieting be able to fix their food overwhelm and live a a full and unrestricted life pursuing their personal passions and attain optimal health without the distraction of rigid eating behavior. She is also the creator and host of the Eat Fluencer podcast, where she and her guests dig into the mindset work required to construct a healthy, complete, and high quality life unlimited by the oppression of diet culture. So welcome, Maggie. Well, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to have this conversation with you. I am so excited to have you as I know Brittany is as well. And I guess you want to just get started with what drew you to this space? You know, you're a physician. So what drew you from originally to be a physician? And then what was the catalyst to actually change over into the anti-diet space? Right. So me becoming a physician was, that's not an interesting story because I've wanted to be a doctor since I was like three years old. And I just did because that's what I did. (laughs) There's not much to that part of the story, but here's where it gets interesting. So I was about Oh, let me do the math here. About 14, 15 years into my practice, I'm a pediatrician and practiced by every measure, sort of just conventional pediatrics. All right. Kind of gave out the advice that I had learned in medical school and training, which very much as I know now is a reflection of diet culture influence. But at the time, you don't think anything of it. You are just, that's how doctors are trained. I mean, frankly, that's how dietitians are trained too. And you just do it. Well, I was diagnosed with cancer about five years ago myself, and I was forced to go through treatment and take off work for about six months and all this. I shouldn't say forced to go through treatment. That sounds weird, but forced (laughs) to not go to work for six months and have this sort of forced pause. That's a better way to say that. And I, in my, this is my diet culture brain talking at the time. All right. Is that there's a perfect human diet out there. I better figure it out because I have cancer. So I better figure it out. So I had time, the opportunity in that time to like really do a kind of independent study or whatever you want to call it. And I started reading about weight science and nutrition science. And I mean, reading like PubMed articles, not just like reading Instagram. Okay. And (laughs) I realized very quickly reading all this, like, whoa, this is like, this contradicts what I've been repeating. Like, where's the science to support what I've been saying, what I was taught to say. And then you go digging, 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 and you realize it's not really there. If you're, if you're scrutinizing of the science, there's not, in my opinion, adequate science. There is plenty of science because there's a lot of ways to publish a paper. So that motivated me to go back to graduate school and get a graduate degree in nutrition. 
And I went into that thinking, this is going to be different. Like it's now, so it's like, you know, fast forward, it's been 15 years since I had this other part of my formal education. I'm sure, sure, certainly it's different. You know, I'm the one that's out of touch. Well, newsflash, no. And the people in my cohort, you know, these are people getting a master's degree in nutrition. Many of them went on to do internships and become dietitians and stuff. And they're, they are learning in the year 2017, 2018, like the same stuff that I learned in medical school in the 1990s. So then I was really, that got me fired up. And I thought that something is not right. I mean, this, we are not practicing evidence-based care. And I'm not, I will not do that. I am not willing to do that. I don't want to do that in my own life. I don't want to advocate for that for my patients. And so then that sort of like unraveled this whole entire world that I didn't even wasn't aware even existed. And I chose to really pursue this work because I think it's important and maybe even more important than the work I was doing before. So I've left my clinical practice almost altogether. I do a very small amount of clinical work, but you know, this is so important because everything depends on this. Everything depends on it. When every doctor in the world and every dietitian in the world and every, you know, healthcare provider in the world is not putting forth like the best evidence that's that's not okay with me like and it shouldn't be okay and and you know the problem is the the patients are the ones that get caught in the crossfire you know so that's that's how I got here. So I was, have not always been here. People are like, how did you figure this out? And that's my story, how I figured it out because I did, I was the quintessential diet culture, hand out the food pyramid, lose weight advocate. And I've changed and it's hard to change and admit that perhaps some of your education is no longer relevant, but I, I think that's our obligation. I mean, we work in a scientific discipline that evolves so I don't, I'm not like guilty of doing anything wrong. I don't like commit malpractice or something, but it's just a lot of people are reticent to change because they learned something one way, 10, 20, 30, 50 years ago. And they assume that's just kind of it. Lauren and I are both just like nodding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, yes, a lot of nodding. Yes. <laughs> and I was going to ask you, why do you think we're still in this, right? Like what really needs to change, whether it's, you know, in school to become a dietitian, is it something, cause in medical medical school, I know that most people don't get much nutrition education, which, you know, it's, it's not your job to do the nutrition education. That's why we have dietitians. Right. But what do you think needs to change in the training of dietitians, of doctors, of all these different, you well, know? Yeah. There's, there's kind of like three problems. And the thing that's interesting is it's weird that we in medicine, like allow everything else to evolve and we continuously consume new information, come up with new ideas, come up with new solutions. I mean, we're not using the same surgical technique that we did 50 years ago and the same equipment in the hospital. And this, I mean, like we know it, but for some reason, somebody make some commentary about food or a macronutrient in the 1950s. And we think it's like some sort of biblical truth that <laughs> it is immutable. And it's weird. It's just really weird for a science discipline. I mean, that's, you know, it's just strange, but the, the three things to answer your question, you know, the, the first is obviously the education needs to be, and I, I can speak from a little bit from both perspectives. It's, it's really influenced by the people putting the information out there. Like there's so much bias in the literature, in the textbooks, in the, who's paying the salaries of these professors. I mean, there's like, and I'm not saying it's all smarmy and dirty, but there's just, there's more to it than simply 
they just need to get up to speed with things. There's a lot of sort of back end issues and you're exactly right. Doctors get so little training in nutrition. It's horrifyingly small, horrifyingly. And the amount we get is very focused on critically ill patients and, you know, real granular detail about, you know, TPN and intensive care patients. We're not talking about like the average person who's just trying to buy stuff at the grocery store. That's not really what, which is most of our patients, by the way, most of our patients are not in the ICU. So we spend all our time learning this like really nuanced stuff because it's so technical, but we kind of like just gloss over like, oh yeah, just give everybody else food pyramid. You know, here's how to calculate, you know, potassium metabolism for a burn patient, but everybody else just gets a food pyramid. You know, it's like really is almost that crazy. So The other thing too, is there's, I was lucky in a sense to have that forced pause to start really studying this stuff, because I'll be honest with you. Had I not had that whole event transpire, I'd probably still be handing out the food pyramid in the year 2020 and telling people that they were part of the obesity epidemic and giving them, you know, terrible advice. Because when you're in the training in medical school, there is so much information, a massive amount of information. You just can't question everything and be cynical on every single piece of it and do a really deep independent study. Like the professor is standing there in the front of the room with white hair and a bow tie. And he tells you that this is what it means to eat a carbohydrate. You sort of just say, okay. And then you just move on. Like I got, I got a thousand other things to do, you know, put in my brain. Mm-hmm. So the education is not good. The, the other thing is we have to remember that dietitians and doctors and therapists and all these people are just people. And when the social culture is so deeply ingrained, like we're not immune to that either. You know, we still are under our own personal biases from, and I'm, I'm in my mid forties. So I grew up like in the eighties and nineties. I mean, totally drink as much diet Coke as you can get your hands on fat-free everything. Like in a little piece of that, even though I know that's not evidence, like that's how I grew up looking at food. And so it's very hard to shake that completely off. And everybody's got their own food sort of biases and food story. So that's the second piece is this just uh, implicit bias. And then the third part is the practice environment is not set up to support these conversations. It is just, I mean, you and I have already been talking on this podcast longer, twice as long as most doctor's visits. We haven't even started to scratch the surface. So to expect in a clinical setting, when you have 10, maybe 12 minutes with a patient twice a year, on a good, if that's a compliant patient who comes back twice a year, most people are like, deuces, see you later. <laughs> you know, you can't completely unpack all these issues, even if you had the training and even if you wanted to. And that is the reason I really stepped away. I knew that I couldn't make the change I wanted to make in the clinical environment right now. Like, I hope that's not always the case, but for the moment, it just is so fixed the way that things have to be conducted in a, in a clinical environment. And I I can only imagine it's probably the same way for a dietitian too. There's just, there's too much, like it's just too restrictive. So to me, those are the problems, the education, the personal bias, the cultural bias, and the practice environment. It is set up to provide this disservice to our patients. I mean, it just is. So I think we have to, if we want to solve this problem, which I do see hope that it's happening. The fact that 
you and I even have podcasts talking about these issues that that's like, wouldn't have been even a thing like 10 years ago. Right. So, so there is conversations happening. There are people I hear from, you know, more junior people that are just newly kind of coming out of training that they hear like, Oh, they, they mentioned health at every size in my internship for like 30 seconds. It's like, okay, well, that's good. Hey, they, hey, they mentioned it. That's a, let's the first step more than I got. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's 30 more seconds than you got. So uh, we're going to make progress, but it's going to take a lot of different avenues kind of chipping away at these different pieces of it to, we're trying to overturn a cultural narrative. Mm. That is some heavy lifting friends. I mean, yeah, it's not a matter of the lack of science, which is so interesting when we are an evidence based field, whether you're a dietitian or, you know, a medical provider in general, like it's, I think a big part of it is the biases. biases. Oh yeah, it is. Cause we, cause you're not even looking for a new way to think, right? That's what bias means is you're not even open-minded about thinking there might be another way. Exactly. So you're just doing it. Yeah, go ahead, Brittany. I was going to say what's interesting too is I don't even really think that most healthcare providers, physicians, dietitians, unless you're in this space, even are aware of something like weight stigma in healthcare and the negative impact that can actually have on a patient. Well, that's the whole piece is is totally not recognizing that it impacts their health that because see that's what I try to teach to everybody and I didn't mean to cut you off but that's exactly what I emphasize because it's not nice to marginalize groups it's not nice to be quote you know mean to people okay we all agree with that but if you want to talk about the medicine part of it it actually is harming their health their psychological health and their physical health So if you even don't want to be a nice person, if you want to, I mean, like that's a whole other conversation, you know, but just if you follow the science, like it doesn't even work. And then here's the other, here's the other part I like to point out that, because I I get doctors arguing with me all the time. You know, I get the trolley comments about, I can't believe you're promoting obesity. They should take your license away. I said, okay, uh, great. Thank you. You know, thank thank you for your commentary. Uh, User, you know, one, two, four, zero, underscore five, you know, Um, right. Exactly. But the, uh, and I, I got off track what I was saying. The, if you even look at their perspective, so the perspective of most of these biased providers is that weight loss by itself is a health metric. Okay. I don't believe that the two of you don't believe that, but let's just say for a second that maybe there was some health benefit to being smaller. Well, guess what doctors out there telling your patients, you need to lose weight. I'm doing air quotes. It ain't working. So mm-hmm. even if that's the outcome you want, which I don't agree with, even if that is your outcome, you're not even getting the oh, your own outcome. Yeah. So that should be a little motivation to be like, you know what? You're right. That doesn't exactly work. And then you can start unpacking why that doesn't work. And then you that's where you get to the science. But sometimes that's that's kind of the transition point where I have to meet these people at because they are not willing to just come to the other side, Yes, but you say, okay, so great. So you think smaller is better. Losing weight is an advantage to your patients. And you've told 100% of your patients to lose weight in the last, let's say 12 months. And you know, 2% of them have. (laughs) So how's that? And of those 2%, how many are able to keep it off? Yeah. And how many of those have eating disorders? You know, so it's like, it's doesn't, I don't know. It's so interesting too. And I'm sorry to cut you off. Obviously this is something we're all three, like very passionate about, but yeah. 
one of my best friends is a physician and we have these like really open conversations all the time because she'll say, well, I feel like I'm doing a disservice by not telling them to lose weight. And I will say to her, you know, they probably have heard it from every single provider. They are showing up in your office expecting to hear that. And that is often why a lot of patients don't want to go to the doctor because how many times do you want to be told to lose weight? And something I said to her that I firmly believe, she said, you know, my friend said, well, what happens if someone comes in with diabetes? Like I need to tell them to lose weight. I'm like, well, what would you say if someone in a smaller body came in with diabetes? Would you tell them to lose weight or would you show them how to manage your blood sugars? And so I think we need to take a step back and look at, you know, how do we to care for those in smaller bodies? And why are we not offering the same amount of medical service to those in larger bodies? Right. Oh, that's such a huge problem. And, you know, the interesting thing is that we, that health at every size does not mean, and I know you all have said this, I must say it again, does not mean every person is healthy. That is not what it means. That's not what anybody thinks it means. If you know, if that's what you think it means, you don't know what it means. So it's, it says that health is possible at any size or every size. I like to say the opposite of that, that unhealth is also possible in any size body. And so we, when we measure health in pounds, not only do we do a complete disservice to people in large bodies, and there's plenty of people in large bodies who are totally healthy and are going to probably outlive everybody else I know. Um, and we shame them and we marginalize them and we push them out of the healthcare system and the whole thing. We also, if you're in a small body and you're quote, you know, normal and everything on the chart, we like pat them on the back and say, way to go. And we don't even ask what's going on. And they have eating disorders. They have chronic disease. They have drug addictions. They have mental health problems right in front of our faces. And we don't even, we've basically congratulated them. So can we all just agree that like the size of body is that's by judging people, whether they're big or small is not really the point. So my whole hypothesis or my, you know, this is a pretty revolutionary idea. Like, let's just not weigh the patients. I'm kidding. I, I'm not kidding. I'm, I'm serious. Like we should take the scale physically out of the office and bring it back for the very few extreme cases where there's a reason. Okay. I mean, if you're getting dialysis, you need to get weighed. If you're getting right. chemotherapy, you need to get weighed. Like I'm not so dense to think there's no right. reason to weigh a patient, but if you were in that office for a sinus infection or a rash or a migraine headache or diarrhea, whatever the simplest outpatient care type situation is, which is most of them, you don't even need to get on the scale. Mm. You don't need to get on the scale. There's all these urban legends about, well, but my doctor won't get paid if they don't weigh me or the pharmacy won't fill my medicine if they don't weigh me. Nope, nope, and nope. <laughs> okay. So I would like to advocate that doctors don't weigh their patients unless it is clinically necessary, which is a, those should be the outliers. That should be the exception and not the rule. But because I don't trust all the doctors yet, I think we should just take the scales away. Mm -hmm. You have to treat them like toddlers, you know, for a little <laughs> bit and then train them, retrain them and then be like, you can have your scale back if you learn how to use it, if you can play nicely. <laughs> <laughs> but it's something really big has to happen because yeah. I think this borders on, and I'm not an attorney, but I will say this almost borders on medical negligence, in my opinion. And if there's some smart attorney who would like to pursue that, <laughs> I think they would have a reasonable case, honestly. And they would have it a billion fold over because every doctor essentially is practicing like this. And furthermore, like it's, 
we are, it's really discriminatory and it's sort of like permitted. And it's even, I would go beyond permitted. It was, it's encouraged. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that it would work really well if we treated disabled people, elderly people, black people, gay people, all the people, like the way that we treat people based on their body size. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there's yeah. diversity. And I, I'm not saying all those other problems are fixed. Trust me, those people are getting marginalized as well. But at least there's a conversation about it being not okay. Mm -hmm. You know, this is sort of like okay and maybe even encouraged. That's like a problem, major problem for me. That is that is such a good point, because those groups you mentioned, like it's not it's not okay to to for be, you know, prejudiced against them, marginalized against them. But with body size, it's it's accepted to, you know, tell someone to lose weight. Right. And yeah, encouraged. Exactly. So I kind of want to get into, you know, there's an argument in the anti-diet intuitive eating space where I guess not within us, but where people will come back at providers like us and will say, you know, well, intuitive eating can only take you so far. Right. You know, there gets to a point where that they just get a little too heavy or they're just too big. There's a, there's a point where a certain weight isn't healthy anymore. I hear that, hear that all of the time. What do you say to that? Okay. So this is pretty simple. And I know I'm saying this for the benefit of your listeners. I know that you know this, but yeah. what's not healthy about that? Well, they have hypertension. Okay. Well then let's talk about your patients with hypertension. Well, they have diabetes. Well, then let's talk about their glucose profile. Well, they have fatty liver disease. Well, let's talk about their LFTs. Like, okay, that's fine. I, those are all valid health concerns, but let's just talk about those. Like, I don't, I just don't understand that kind of middle Yes. A piece. I'm embarrassed to say this. Like I was actually in a dietitian Facebook group and there is always a lot of, I will say like some hostility between the anti-diet dietitians and those who really encourage weight loss. And what I saw someone write yesterday, and this is someone in my, our field. And they said, you know, I find like intuitive eating can be okay for some people, but like, I do not believe that somebody with like a BMI of X should ever be allowed to just be told they could eat whatever they want. And their whole philosophy was, well, like carrying that much weight on a body is not healthy. And again, like this is people who treat people who work with people. And it's so upsetting to see how much fat phobia there is, even within the dietetics field. Right. Well, and, and to somebody like that, you know, and I, this stuff is so inflammatory. It is hard to even respond. I I understand that. Like when they say that just can't be healthy, like that's the operative word is okay. I want you to say that sentence again with another word and they will be hard pressed to come up with a word because they don't, there's no, I mean, like if the word is insulin resistant, okay, then let's measure that. And in that specific patient, is that an issue or not? If it is, yes, then we as dietitians and doctors know how to address that. Like, okay, but see that that doesn't have anything to do with their body size. It has to do with insulin resistance. And there's plenty of skinny people with insulin resistance. So, so that, okay, we'll take the word in. Okay, what's your other word? Oh, like I said, it's just, if we want to talk about health, that's fine. And that's the whole misnomer is they, the more sort of traditionally practicing, shall we say, dietitians and doctors look at people like us and say, well, you don't even care about health. I said, no, we care about health. <laughs> we care a lot about health, but we don't measure health in weight. And I can give you a hundred other ways to measure health. And that's what the science, I mean, I know this whole conversation, you want it to be about the science, but that is what the evidence shows is that 
if you have hypertension, you are at more risk for having a stroke. You know, if you have insulin resistance, you are more risk for developing diabetes in the next 10 years. That's the problem. And that is, those are true facts, whether you're skinny or medium size or large or polka dotted or black and white or tall or short or rich or poor, like the biometrics kind of don't care about everything else. And so, yeah, and see, that's also what's really infuriating about that is that the person you're talking about said they shouldn't be allowed to eat whatever they want. Okay. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Like (laughs) they're allowed to eat whatever they want. They're grown adults. And yeah, I forgot where I heard this. Alyssa Rumsey quoted somebody else, but they said, what we prescribe for some people, I'm going to butcher this. I'm going to, oh, I know exactly what yeah. you're going to say. What's, what's we, the quote? Yeah. We prescribe, well, I'm not going to quote it exactly, but I, I love her and I read her book and did a book review on it. And she says that what we prescribe in large people as healthcare would be basically eating disorders in yes. small yes. bodies. Or the fact that we tell people in larger bodies eat less and that's, it's just so crazy to me how, again, like negligent our care is for people in larger bodies. So, right. Because if you had a person in a slender body who had, let's say, hypertension or diabetes, would your advice as a dietitian or doctor be eat less? Right. Nobody would say that, right? That's crazy talk. So I just, I really don't get it. And this is one of these things that once you start really digging into you, it's very challenging to unsee this. Like, I'm not even sure what the Maggie 15 years ago would have said back to you if you said this to me then. I don't even know because I'm so far removed from that. I don't even kind of see the other's argument. Totally. I think, and you mentioned, you know, the healthful goals that you can basically have other than weight. What are some healthful goals that people can set for themselves without it becoming obsessive and without it be being about weight. Sure. So like really practically, like objectively, what are we looking at? Yeah. Okay. So stuff like the quality of your sleep. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's something everybody can monitor and figure out your blood pressure. That's a good one. Your resting heart rate. That's a good one. Mm. Your, you know, your labs in terms of your, you know, sort of your glucose profile. And there's more that goes into that, obviously, but um, your inflammatory markers, your lipid panel, how flexible and how much muscle tone you have. And I say that not like buff muscle tone, but I say that like to prevent fall for fall prevention and that sort of stuff. Like, do you have energy to participate in all the activities you wish to participate in? Are you performing at your you know, job at the highest cognitive ability. I mean, like all this stuff. And um, yeah, there's like, and you can do that. And see, here's the thing is when you take the weight out, because when you tell people to lose weight, uh, well, that's garbage, but it's also a very far off answer. You can have all these things when you lose however many pounds. Okay. That's a, that's problematic because most people can't even see themselves doing that because they've failed so many times at doing that. And there's really no real way to be successful at that particularly. So, but when you start measuring what actually counts, I have a, in fact, my group coaching, I have a module called measure what matters. And it's basically, let's make a list of all these things for you. And there are certain biometrics that would apply to everybody, but there's also like sort of quality of life metrics that I think are individualized, you know, and do you have the energy to, you know, play soccer with your kid in the backyard? Or, you know, do you want to walk up two flights of stairs at work instead of taking an elevator? I mean, just like, what are your goals, right? And we make a big list of those and we say, okay, so we can start working on these. And there are some 
you know, things I could recommend that you do with your perhaps movement routine or whatever that might help this. But those are goals and those are goals you can get to really quickly. Like I can walk up the stairs at work and if I do it every day for three or four days, I can tell you a difference on the fourth day from the first day. Like, I don't have to wait six months or 12 months to feel like I have a win in my book, you know, and that keeps people focused on like actually taking on health promoting behavior. Cause that's what we're trying to do. If people wish to pursue health, which is a whole other conversation, whether that's a obligation, I don't feel that it is, but if you wish to do that, which is what most people are coming to you and I for is to, you know, pursue health, then, then let's do exactly that. And you don't have to wait. And that's why you asked me right before we started recording how long my program is. My program is not very long because you can have wins in a short period of time if you're looking for the right wins. Right. You know, if you're trying to lose 20% of your body weight, then you have to be in a 18 month long program because if it even happens, it's going to take that long. So yeah, it's, and it's more positive. It's a more positive experience for people. Everybody likes to feel like they're getting where they want to go. Really? Yeah. So it just works. It just works. I mean, I would just encourage anybody who's listening, who's a healthcare professional to like kind of maybe revise some of the goal setting and stuff that we do with our clients and our patients and see if when we put it a little more in their realm of possibility, like this whole non-compliant business will maybe drop off the map a little more because they'll be kind of invested. People, you know, sort of support what they help to create, I believe. So, yeah. Totally. So let's, you know, we want to dive into the science a lot in this because I think that's a big argument for people that don't fully, you know, know the science behind weight. They're like, well, all the all the headlines, it's always like, obesity kills the obesity epidemic, you know, COVID all this obesity, yeah, COVID and obesity, all these different things. Like our world is, and so much of the media is about this, like clickbait and the news mm-hmm. and all of that. So what do you suggest, or what do you even say to, you know, people who are like, well, the research shows that obesity is, is the problem, right? What do you, how do you back that up? Well, I start with this and I'm going to say this really nicely, but if you're not trained to read research, scientific research, and you don't have a background in statistical analysis mm-hmm. and epidemiology and things like that, yeah. it's okay if you don't. It really is okay if you don't. Most people don't. And that's okay. There's a lot of people that do stuff that I don't know a thing about, but you've got to understand that there are people who do this and have done it for a living and done it for a career like the three of us, plus many other people. So, so when you say the research says, like, this is just a lay person saying with research says, I would like to see the research. And I still have yet had one person hand to me a article or a reference to an article that is legitimate peer-reviewed current science with an acceptable kind of passes acceptable scrutiny. Like who's funding the study? Was the population big enough? Was the follow-up long enough? Was all the variables controlled for all the stuff that I can throw around all these terms all day long? Cause I know how to read science. I'm sorry. I just do. And the two of you also do. So like the headline news is not science. That is like you said, this sort of fantastical uh, media 
production, mostly put on by people who have a vested interest in you believing it because at the end of the line, there's a product or a service to be sold. So the first thing is we have to understand what is the definition of actual science and research. And and to be honest, kind of leave that to the pros to decide. Because in my opinion, I, and as soon as somebody proves me wrong, I will stop saying this. I really truly am not that vain that I think somebody couldn't prove me wrong, but I I just haven't seen it yet that there is sufficient science to support the pursuit of weight loss and the application of weight loss in a healthcare setting, period. I just don't think it exists. And the other key thing to understand, and this is something that everybody can understand that even if you're not a, a nerd like us, okay? So there's a difference between correlation and causation. And this is headlines 99.9% of the time are correlative. They're pulling this out of a correlative study. So I'm not necessarily saying that the news is straight up lying. Okay. But they're getting their information from a source that shows an association. And see, that's what it always, that's usually the word they use. They say, uh, so-and-so is, you know, obesity is associated with diabetes. Well, Actually, that is true that it's associated with it. Although all that means is that it occurs with more frequency in that group. It doesn't mean that one thing makes the other one happen. And this is like, this is the most simple, simple explanation I can make it. But in the summer, your electricity bill goes up. Well, I'm in Texas. I don't know where you guys are, but it's hotter than the seventh circle of Hades here. So (laughs) the, your electricity bill goes up in the summer and you are more likely to have ice cream in your freezer. Okay. Okay. Because I buy ice cream, my electricity bill does not go up. It has it has no impact. The common denominator is it's hotter than the 10th circle of Hades here. And so my air conditioning is running and I enjoy eating ice cream. So you have to get to the root. It's called a root cause. It's You have to get to the root cause. So I would hypothesize, and this is what I have seen in the literature, that the root cause of this association between, let's just say obesity and diabetes, because that's a common one, is that there is a underlying inflammatory response. There is insulin resistance. There is weight stigma in the people in the obese body, obese bodies. My fingers are tired of air quotes, by the way. Um, It's like, like, I hate that word, but it's just what everybody uses. So there are, there is weight stigma in those people that causes a psychological reaction, which causes a cortisol response, which causes an increase in their serum glucose, which causes insulin to be secreted. I mean, I can just talk about this. So, so to me, that's like the middle ground. Like that's what we need to address, not the body, because here's, here's the other thing too. So there is an association with being in a lower socioeconomic group and developing diabetes as well. Do you see the doctors telling the poor patients that they need to become rich in order to cure their diabetes? Are we screening their tax returns at the front door where we say, get on the scale, let's measure your BMI. And by the way, I'd like to see your uh, W2 from last year because I need to figure out if you have diabetes from looking at your tax return. That's stupid. It sounds ridiculous. I mean, I'm making a ridiculous analogy because that's basically what we're doing is we're taking something that's associated and not causative and then, and then like throwing out the middle part. Like we got to get to the middle part. So the headline of the news shouldn't say, obesity is associated with diabetes, even though that is the answer, what that means to the lay person is it causes. They substitute the word cause, okay? What it should say is obese patients have less secure food access and healthcare and are weight stigmatized and potentially have an inflammatory response in some cases that should be investigated to ascertain whether they have the risk of developing diabetes. That's what the headline should say, but that wouldn't, like nobody would click on that. 
You see what I'm saying? That's why I don't work for the news because they wouldn't <laughs> like my headlines. <laughs> and that's where people get lost. And this, this extends to many, many health conditions. I mean, if we haven't learned anything through COVID is that everybody suddenly is an epidemiologist like <laughs> yesterday. Uh, but it's particularly bad with this because the cultural belief, this is where the cultural and the science thing intersect is the cultural belief is you can make yourself unfat. Like the people that are elderly can't become young. The people that are black aren't going to become white. The people that are women aren't going to become men. So we sort of just leave that alone and say, well, I, you know, I can't really bother you about that. But the people that are in big bodies are somehow slender people waiting to be, to show up or something. I don't know. And or that's what, like rescued from their fat bodies. Honestly. Yeah, exactly. Like I even think about like the biggest loser. It's like, oh, we're doing them the biggest favor. Oh. Girl, rescuing them from all these like health conditions. Yeah. And that worked out really well. Right. And honestly, the most trolled I've ever gotten on Instagram was when I said, if you don't try to change your shoe size, why do we think that people can change their body size? I was getting trolled. I had to, I'm sure like hate comments. Yeah. Hate comments. You've never seen anger until you state that people can't really lose weight. You know what? And I feel like that comes from probably two groups of people. One, I ha- I, tr- I really try to be empathetic. I really do. I-, I-, I have a hard time sometimes, but I think it comes from people that happen to be in a slender body and happen to have some health promoting behaviors of their own. And they feel like those things are related and that that is proof to them. Okay. But the truth is they could probably not have those health behaviors and still be in that body. But see, they don't know that they are putting those two things as related or those comments are coming from people in large bodies who have been bullied so much uh, in the healthcare system and outside the healthcare system that they believe this sort of biblical truth that smaller is better because it's part of their belief system, which is why they're so fired up, why they're spending their time sending you hate DMs on Instagram. Like it's really sad. It's really, I mean, I hate getting messages like that too, because it's just like, y'all, I am trying to do the good work. Like just scroll on by, you know what I'm saying? Unfollow. I don't care, whatever. But yeah, I think they're not informed. I'm, I'm sure they're not informed. And they're also probably not supported in their own environment, whatever that environment is. And so that becomes their belief system. Like your belief system is just a product of your environment. And so we need to change the environment. I mean, that's the only way this is going to change, in my opinion, is we've, we have to change the conversation. And it doesn't, here's my ask for the health professionals. If you can't come like to our side and jump over the Grand Canyon tomorrow, you know what? That's okay. I, as a professional, understand how challenging that is. Could you please at least not make this worse? Okay. Like, like, you know, Lauren and Brittany and I were willing to like do some of the heavy lifting here, but like, if you could at least just not make this worse, that would be the first step, (laughs) you know? And then, okay, that's fine. If you, if you're not, if you can't give out health at every size brochures in your office. If you can't advocate for intuitive eating and teach it or whatever. Okay. That's okay. Can we just not like weight shame our patients and like make them leave and never come back? Like at us just as a starting point, because that's the problem. I mean, we're doing a disservice to the individual person. And then this is the, this is how it happens. This is, this is how research is produced is we 
treat patients like this? Because, you know, patients in research studies come out of clinical environments most of the time. Only people like Ansel Keys can like lock people up in a hospital in Minnesota <laughs> for six months and starve them. No, but that's not like allowed by most IRBs that I know of. So we do clinical research in clinical settings. So these are real life interactions with people. So we take all the fat people and we say that they have diabetes because we've weight shamed them and they haven't come back to care and all this sort of stuff. And they leave and they don't follow up and they're embarrassed and their doctor's terrible. And then we publish a paper and say, I told you so they all have diabetes. And we're like, okay, well, who did we control for the weight stigma that they experienced? Do we control for the fact that they like never came back, that they were like shamed by their own healthcare provider. So then we publish a paper and then we use that as like fodder to then like beat the next generation of patients as they come in say, look, I published a paper. It says that you're going to get diabetes because you're fat. Now you need to lose weight and blah, 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 blah. And it's just this self-fulfilling prophecy. So even if we could just be neutral, even neutral would be good. Like that would be an improvement. And then if you don't have a really, really loud voice and you don't want to like totally be an advocate and an ally and all that kind of stuff, that's okay. That's okay. People are not all comfortable in that space, but like just pretty please, like don't make it worse. (laughs) Wouldn't you agree? (laughs) Yes, 100%. And also I think we need to stop saying the whole like, do your own research, which is like a whole thing in, in COVID right now. And like you were saying, not everybody knows the lay person does not know how to read research. You can cherry pick all day long what that research says, but if you aren't thinking, okay, they didn't control for this. They didn't think about this. You can make the research say whatever you really want it to say. It's just a matter of how you position it. Right. Well, and it's, and that's, Okay, we're not shaming you and saying that we're better than you. That we can. We're saying this is our professional training and this is our career. Like I'll tell you what, and this is just a little anecdote. I was at a school board meeting in my school district here last night. That was like the longest school board meeting I've. I'm sure it's not the longest one on record, but I would say six hours is pretty healthy length. And there was one point during the meeting where the lady who's the head like accountant for the school district got up and presented this million page document, and we're talking like a. $280 million budget. And she's going through all these line item things. And what she was saying to me, I mean, she wasn't saying it to me, but saying to the group, I was like, I have no idea. I I mean, I had no, the word she was using and the way that this became this number and this all happened. And I thought, you know what? I, if I got up and replied to this lady and said, well, I don't think that's really how you calculate the INS because I think that you need to take 10%. off." I mean, it would be stupid. It would just be so ignorant because I don't have any clue. This lady's a CPA. She's been doing this her whole career. At some point, if you have somebody in a trustworthy position, you've got to just let them be an expert. And that's what I feel like when I'm talking about these things. And, you know, of course I have COVID fresh on the mind, but I talk about COVID a lot too. It's like, y'all, it's fine if you don't understand science. I don't expect every person to have practiced medicine for 20 years, but like, like, let me just do my job. The, The problem is though, everyone thinks that they are a health expert or nutritionist, like someone will say, well, I lost 10 pounds. So it worked for me. And it's like, that's great. If that worked for you, that doesn't mean it works for the greater population. So Which is why we do research, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like with all these like keto people and, you know, all of these coaches who have like zero degree in medicine or healthcare, it's really scary that everyone just calls themselves an expert if they have like any yeah. lived experience whatsoever. Exactly. Well, so, and that's where I get caught up because I, frankly, I don't like the word coach 
because I feel like, like you said, anybody can say that. I mean, and I know people that sell MLM stuff that are coaches, air quotes, my tired fingers, but I also don't like really advertising that I'm a healthcare professional because as we've talked about for half an hour, 40 minutes, whatever, um, nobody can trust them either. So I'm not sure what to call myself. (laughs) (laughs) So I just make up words because it's so, it's just challenging. It is really challenging. And it's, we're in a hard place because you're right that everybody having the internet on their phones and in their pockets, they believe to be experts in everything. But I think we need to just at the end of the day, say like, okay, we're we're not an expert at everything. Like, and you know, like I take my car in to get serviced. I don't have any idea. Like the guy comes out and says that this belt timer thing. Okay. Like how, how could I even argue? That's not even defensible to me. So your choices are this, believe him. Okay. And buy your belt timer thing for your car or bring somebody with you who also has that same level of knowledge and let them have a conversation. You know what I'm saying? Like, and, and so if you don't trust the person, then bring somebody, somebody you trust that knows the same amount, not, you know, I mean, like, that's okay, but come on people, the science is there. The science, the books have, there's books and books and articles. And, you know, I like the three of us didn't like come up with this idea. This is not like some sort of just like fantastical, like fringe idea that we're just like, you know, pulled out of thin air. People have done a lot of work to get to this point. So, I mean, I see myself as an advocate, and, uh, you know, sort of like educator, I guess, more than a, I'm not doing the research. I don't need to do the research as far as I'm concerned. It's there. Yeah. And the opposite is true, right? Because I get people saying like, OK, well, if you didn't pull this out of thin air, like then where did they pull out the, you know, diabetes is caused by obesity, you know, idea. And it's like, well, that wasn't pulled out of thin air either. It's just that you're not getting the whole picture here, right? You're getting it from these places that aren't accounting for confounding factors, or they're just putting it on the headline because it was an association in the study, but it's, it was never a causation. And I think that's what we really need to understand. Right. Because there's like actual statistical boundaries of what is acceptable to claim causation. Like we know that, you know, and I'm not going to talk about P value and stuff like this is not (laughs) a statistics podcast, but like those things exist. Like it's not arbitrary when scientists and researchers decide something is acceptable or not acceptable. And that's the beauty of peer reviewed research is it, it's not even up to the person who published the research at all. Frankly, it's up to everybody else to decide. So there's lots of systems in place to make science good quality. And that's, you know, that like we have to sort of know where that is. And that's not I mean, it's not like it's a privileged experience. It's just like this is what I'm trained to do. This is what you all are trained to do. And like I said, to my knowledge, and the second somebody sends me a paper that I think is acceptable in my scientific scrutiny that demonstrates that weight loss by itself, when everything else has been controlled for, makes people healthier, mail the paper to me. Send me the reference. Okay. I will go on my podcast and uh, tell the entire world, but uh, it hadn't happened yet. And I suspect that most other people like us have made the same plea that, you know, I'm open to learning, but I continue to learn. And uh, the more I learn, honestly, it just puts me deeper into the anti-diet work because I think that's where the trail kind of goes. And you can't unlearn it. Like once you know it, you really can't. Oh no. It's like emerging from the matrix. You cannot... I have never one. Now you guys to answer this question for me, have you ever had a person that you've talked to about this stuff and they come back to you like months later and say, you know what, Lauren, I actually forgot what you said. What does diet culture mean again? Cause I don't remember like, 
Nobody forgets this. Nobody, not a single person. You cannot see it. Nope. You're exactly right, Brittany. That's exactly right. So that's the good news. And see, that's what I tell my clients. I'll say, here's the deal. I'm not cramming any more information into your brain. Like no more that you don't have another list to learn or a bunch of things to remember or some hack or whatever it is. Like we're going to systematically unpack all that stuff. And then what's left over, that's what you retain. That's really what the anti-diet sort of intuitive eating thing is, is it's just like you take all the junk away, the junk thinking, and then, then you're left just being like a human eating food, like a toddler. Like you turn back into like the two-year-old that eats when they're hungry and doesn't eat when they're not hungry and they eat what they like. And if they don't like it, they won't eat it. And they run around, they don't think about it. And they're not counting macros and they don't care what their body looks like. And <laughs> like, we want to revert to that stage. And that's really, it's in us. It's in all of us. It's just, we have to get rid of all those uh, other things that we've kind of piled up on top of it now. Exactly. Well, Maggie, this has been so amazing. You guys are so fun. Thank you for inviting me. You have to come back. I feel like we could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. I know we probably should break that up into several episodes because your listeners are like, good grief, folks. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot to digest and it's a lot to, you know, to be able to, especially when you're, I get a lot of time, my, a lot of times my clients are like, I'm learning this all myself. And when I'm in a scenario with somebody else that's like questioning what I'm doing, it's so hard for them to defend it because they don't, they're like, I don't even know how to, how to break it down when I'm learning myself. And all of these people that are asking me about it have their own beliefs. Yes. Right. So true. Well, yeah. And that's part of what I see. Our mission is not only to sort of teach the real science, but also to give our patients and our clients this degree of resiliency, because you will be confronted with diet culture, period. I mean, until I like, I hope that's not a forever statement, but for the moment it it's going to happen. So, and I tell that, you know, my coaching clients, I'm like, okay, you guys we're all on this zoom call and they're all like, yeah, yeah. Burn it down. Ooh, you know, yeah. and I'm like, okay, as soon as you log off the computer, I don't want you to be second guessing this. I don't want you to, you know, you've got to have that sort of internal compass mm-hmm. because you're going to have to navigate this hot mess out there. You, you have to go to the grocery store you're going to turn on the internet. You've got to go to your doctor's office. You've got to, you know, what do you do when your kid comes home from elementary school with a little homework assignment from the health class about the good food and the bad food and the red and the green food, you know, like you have to have sort of like a plan because that stuff is going to happen full stop. So, yeah. And that's, and that's part of the work. That's part of the work. And so you know, I just encourage everybody listening. If you feel like you believe in this, but you don't know how that's why we're here. That's what we do. And and many other people like us, we're like the kind of leader or the guide through that process. Cause you don't just like read a book or listen to a podcast and be like, okay, cool. I'm done. And then you go out there and you feel like great about it every moment. Right. And you can like go make a speech on it and be confident. Oh my God. No. (laughs) Cause it's, it's so confrontational. Diet culture is so confrontational everywhere everywhere, just in our closet, in the morning, in the food, the everywhere. So yeah, get the support you need wherever that, you know, feels the most comfortable to you because it's, it's okay to need kind of assistance through this. That's, that's normal. I I did. I didn't just like read a book and do this myself either. I earlier on when I was kind of adopting this belief system, I, I worked with coaches. I worked, I paid people to help me. You know, I followed people's accounts and, and continued to ask questions and, Yeah. That's how we all got here. Yeah. And speaking of following, 
Where can people find you? Well, that's easy. So Maggie Landis MD, I'm sure you guys will put this in the show notes, but Maggie Landis MD is my handle on Instagram, on Facebook. And that's also my website, MaggieLandisMD.com. I'm on Clubhouse too. You know, I'm kind of all over the place, but uh, I have the same username everywhere. So I'm easy to find, but yeah, I'd love to love to help anybody who feels like they need a sort of guide that's able to help them in this journey. Beautiful. Thank you so much for all your knowledge. Well, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. It's a great conversation. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Food Therapy. If you enjoyed what you heard and want to support our podcast, please subscribe, hit download, and share it with your community. We value your feedback. If you feel inspired, please leave a review. Let us know what you've learned and what you would like to hear next. All information about this episode will be linked in our show notes. New episodes of Food Therapy come out every Sunday, but you can stay connected with Food Therapy all week long by following us on Instagram at foodtherapypod. As a disclaimer, this podcast should not replace therapy or working with a registered dietitian. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.